And the thing that I really appreciate is the fact that even though we have musicians in this church that are marvelously gifted, on Sunday morning they're not performers. But they're people who have humble hearts, who love God, who worship the Lord, and provide for us wonderful wings on which we can fly to worship and praise our Father. I thank God so much for these. Now, I have a confession this morning to make before we begin. I slept through the sermon last Sunday. I really did. You know, sometimes before the preacher gets up, I do pray for him. Had I done so last Sunday, it would have been, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep But uh, it was not because the preacher was inept and the sermon was boring. I was recovering from a very nasty episode of a stomach virus. I was weak as a cat, (laughs) kitten perhaps, maybe more appropriate. But I still listened to the sermon. On Thursday, I went on TCF website and downloaded the sermon that Bill brought. I knew what Bill was going to preach because we had discussed the sermon in advance. And I think our brother Bill brought the word anointed by the Holy Spirit in a wonderful way. But as I listened to that and I reflected on what I felt God would have me say this morning, I began to think back over the sermons of recent weeks, living by eternal values, the word that Jim brought upon the wrath of God, the word that Bill brought on the downward spiral of culture and church itself, and the word that God, I felt, wanted me to bring today, I realized that God, by the Holy Spirit, had been orchestrating a series that none of us had designed, but His hand was behind it, and what a blessing to see how God does that. Now, years ago, when I used to teach children in vacation Bible school and at church camp, one of the things we always did was to teach the children to recite the books of the Bible. And different ones of us did it different ways. The way I would do, I would have children, okay, let's start with the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Everybody say that, all right, let's look at the ceiling and say it. Let's look at the floor and say it. Let's look out the window and say it. And by having them focus their eyes on these different things and their brain became programmed so they would just automatically say it, and on and on we would go. Or uh, in the Old Testament, uh, the books of the Bible are 5-12, you know, the uh, history, uh, law, poetry, major prophets, minor prophets, and so on. But there's some when they taught children to learn the books of the New Testament would do it with a song and always began with the rhythm. Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st Timothy, 2nd Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James, 1st Peter, 2nd Peter, 3 John, Jude, and Revelation. And I thought this morning... I might demonstrate some of the dances and parades that accompanied that song with the children. 
And the Lord said, Jim, you're too full of yourself. <laughs> and so I've chosen not to do so. But I want you to think about that song. <laughs> and notice what it does to Second John and Third John and Jude. <laughs> Three Johns, Jude, and Revelation. In between that magisterial first epistle of John and the intimidating book of Revelation are three of the shortest books of the New Testament. And by the rhythm of the song, and in order to make the lyrics fit the rhythm, they're quickly passed by. You know, it's one thing to be able to recite the books of the Bible and something else to know what's in them. Now, it's easy, of course, to overlook these little letters. Second John has only 13 verses. Third John has 14. Jude has 25. The only other uh, New Testament letter that is as short is uh, Philemon that has 25. Second, third, John's are very specific. Many look at them, well, they really have nothing to say to us as a church. And to a degree, maybe that is true as far as big issues are concerned. But Jude is another matter. Jude is very pointed. And Jude deals with a core issue that needs to be faced by the church in every age. An issue that it needs to be pursued with vigor in every generation, perhaps with greater vigor in ours than ever before. So this morning I want you to join me as we examine this general epistle of Jude. And uh, there are a lot of issues that are raised about this epistle that we're not going to deal with today, but... We want it to. Uh, we want to hear its message. For instance, one of the issues is you look at Jude one, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Now, in the Greek, there is no preposition prior to the word Jesus Christ. And some of your versions say kept by Jesus Christ. Some say kept in Jesus Christ. Some say kept for Jesus Christ. And since there's no preposition, the translator has to decide, what do we do with the dative? And you say, why worry about that? Because whichever decision you make has theological implications. But we're not going to get into that today. But that's the sort of thing, if we were having a class, we would discuss, but we're not. And so this morning, we just want to hear the message of the book. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept in my version for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Now the first thing that grabs our attention as we begin to read this epistle is how Jude defines himself. And by the way, it really is Judas, the Greek word Judas, Judas, and yet in our Bibles it is Jude. 
very common name among the Jews. Six men are mentioned in the New Testament by that name. Two of them are epistles of Jesus, or rather apostles of Jesus. It was the name of the progenitor of the tribe of Judah. As a matter of fact, the name Jew itself comes from Heudas. This was the name of the man who for a season was able to leave victorious Jewish army, armies and for many years give them a respite from the control of foreign nations over the nation of Israel. And so since there are so many Judas, the author identifies himself. I am Judas, a slave of Jesus and brother of James. Twice in the New Testament we find the brothers of Jesus listed. Matthew 13, 55, Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? In Mark chapter 6, verse 3, we find the same list. The only thing, the last two are reversed. So this Judas was either the youngest or next to youngest half-brother of Jesus Christ. James clearly was the half-brother of Jesus, and this Judas was James' brother. Notice, he doesn't in any way elevate himself by saying, I am Judas, I am Jesus' brother. (laughs) But only indirectly he says that by saying, I am the brother of James, who everyone knew was Jesus' half-brother. Usually in Scripture, uh, they don't bother with the term half. They just say, Jesus' brothers. Interestingly, with the exception of James, who became the, the patriarch of the church of Jerusalem, it seems Jesus' other brothers were traveling about in missionary activity. For example, Paul writing in 1 Corinthians, defending his own lifestyle in uh, 1 Corinthians 9, 5, defending the fact that he was a celibate who was traveling about in missionary work, described the missionary work of others, and he said, Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and brothers of our Lord? So the brothers of the Lord evidently also were traveling about in missionary endeavor, and Paul said they're all married. And so this Judas somewhere in the world was proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, this half-brother of Jesus, or as the Bible would call him, the brother of Jesus. Now, here's something to think about. Judas had the same mitochondrial DNA as Jesus. That's the DNA passed down from mother to child. Now, they didn't know about that in that day. (laughs) But think what Judas could have said had he known that. You know that body hanging on the cross given for our salvation has the same mitochondrial DNA as I have? (laughs) Of course, he didn't know about that. (laughs) But he still could have said, I am brother to that one. And yet, he doesn't ever allude to that except indirectly. Notice he identifies himself only two ways. Brother of James and a slave of Jesus Christ. And in verse 25, he describes Jesus as our Lord, Jesus Christ. What 
beautiful humility on the part of one who could have exalted himself. The second thing that catches our attention is Jude's view of himself as reference to our common salvation. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, our common salvation, the word is koinos, that's at the same family that we get, koinonia, which we often translate uh, fellowship or communion, but notice he saw himself as being no different from any other human being. He was a part of a fallen race in need of salvation. Boy, what a lesson for us there. This man, who was the half-brother of Jesus, acknowledged that he needed salvation. Regardless of who we are, one of those who wander up and down the alleys or the executive who sits in a penthouse office, president of the United States or a person who cleans toilets for a living, it makes no difference. <laughs> a preacher who stands in the pulpit or one who is guilty of the worst crimes and punished for them. All of us need that common salvation. Notice that. What an example this man sets for us. He did not say, I am part of a religiously royal family. I am a slave of Jesus and participate in the benefits of the common salvation that belongs to all of us. Doesn't it sicken you at times to see how those who are religious leaders <laughs> tend to exalt themselves instead of having the humble heart of Judas? Now, Judas said I was, he doesn't say exactly what, planning to write some kind of a treatise about this marvelous common salvation. After all, how could you ever stop fully describing it? But as he was planning to do that, he was blocked. And a deep concern came over him regarding the manner in which some individuals within the church we're starting to twist the apostolic doctrine and trying to change the very nature of Christianity. Now, all of us who preach can relate to Judas' experience. I don't know how many times, how many times, how many times on Monday and Tuesday as I'm praying, Lord, what am I to bring next Sunday and after a while, there's something that comes. And you even take out paper and start writing pages of notes and it's just as flowing. You think this is it. And yet, something isn't quite right. And then about Thursday or Friday, you just know. And something comes that you had no expectation at all. And you know, that's the word. That's probably something similar that happened to Jude. I was planning 
to write about this common salvation. And then I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing to you that you contend earnestly for the truth, which was once for all delivered to the saints for the faith, which was once for all. Now the word faith is used different ways in the Bible. Very often it's used concerning some conviction we have, some unwavering belief. That's how it's used in Hebrews. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. In other words, it is this strong belief that makes real that which we cannot see and yet we know is real. For whoever cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That's one way in which the word faith is used, that strong conviction in which doubt has no place. But faith is also used to describe that body of truth the full content of the gospel, who Jesus Christ is, His work that He has done for us, and what holy living really looks like. That's a sense, for example, in which it's used in Acts 6-7. The Word of God kept on spreading, and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith, the word that was preached. Acts 2.42 describes it as the apostles' doctrine. Now those of you who have heard me teach about church government, this is repetition for you, but for who, those of you who have not. The church, in every situation, as it had matured by the end of the New Testament, was always led by a council of elders. There was no such thing as the pastor. But during that time, the scripture had not been fully distributed around the Christian world. Church at Ephesus, for instance, would have the circular letter written to the Laodicean Valley, probably would have had many of the writings of Paul, probably didn't have Matthew. The church in Antioch would have had Others, the book of Luke, and so on and so on. Church in Jerusalem would have had certain ones. Rome would have had others. And so they were not distributed everywhere, although it's surprising how quickly they did become distributed. But before the scriptures were widely distributed, and people were excited about this thing that Jesus Christ had done, the reality of the Holy Spirit and the economy of the church, there were itinerant teachers. And when an itinerant teacher would come to a church and he began teaching, and he'd present something they had never heard before, and they wondered, is this the apostles' doctrine or just some idea of a man or something from Satan? How would they know? And invariably what they would do, they would look to the oldest elder, one who at that time would probably have known an apostle 
or heard preaching by someone who had been an apostolic associate or delegate. And say so they would turn to this oldest elder and say, is this teaching that this man is bringing the apostle's doctrine? Or is it something that he's invented, maybe for his own gain? And that man originally then began to be elevated because he was the authority on the apostles' doctrine. In time, that became the office of a bishop, and he began to have authority. But initially, he was the authority on the apostles' doctrine. The churches wanted nothing but the apostles' doctrine to be presented in their midst. That is the faith of which Jude speaks. There's an interesting word here. Contend earnestly for the faith, my version says, which was once for all. King James says once. Many versions say once for all. That's the Greek word hapax. Hapax means once. And because many readers today wouldn't understand that once means once, more of our modern versions are saying once for all. Now, pox can mean more than once, but it's always like this. It happened once, and then it happened again, and it happened again. But any time it is used that way, there are always other words surrounding it indicating that that's what's happening. But when it is written with, without those ancillary terms, it means once, one time only, never again. And that's what Jude says. It was the faith that has been delivered once. Recently on Sunday night, we have studied the church in America from 1720 on, and in one period of time in our study, we studied Mormonism. And when you read the Book of Mormon, and when you read all the things that Joseph Smith and Brigham Young wrote, which today are doctrine among the Mormons, you can spend hours, okay, let's deal with this doctrine and let's deal with that doctrine and let's deal with that doctrine. What a waste of time. Anything newer than 95 A.D. just reject it out of hand. That's John the Apostle died between 95 and 100. The faith was once delivered. I don't need to spend my time with any piece of junk written after 100 A.D. It is just baloney. Forgive the term, but that's true. But now I want you to notice, Jude is not warning the church about those individuals who stand in external opposition. But he's talking about those individuals who have come into the church and from within, they are starting to work to change it, to change its doctrine, to change its teaching, to change its practice. My, don't we see that today, <laughs> as even some church leaders are trying to accommodate the word to a contemporary situation in order to excuse what they want and what they want the church to be. There always are those in every generation doing it. 
In our day, it seems many in a single generation are doing it. My brother and my sister, we must remember Jude said, contend. Contend for the faith once delivered. You know, when you are the preacher, as I was for many years in another church, other churches, there always is a segment of the church that for some devilish reason is opposed to the preacher. <laughs> That's just life. Years ago, Barb and I had in the church a couple that were very close friends. The husband and wife. Any time anyone began to spread tales or gossip about me, this couple I knew would always be my defender, and they faithfully were. Very close to Barbara and me. The wife was a woman who was a true realist. And when we began to examine things about the Holy Spirit because of all things that were happening, this woman was the first one in the church to have an experience with the Holy Spirit. And I thought if it happened to her, then something must be real. And then the day came when she left her husband and two daughters because she decided she was a lesbian. After I came to PCF, my office used to be back here where the ladies' robing room is and the first half of the Bible Bowl room, and John English's office was there, and Danielle's was the crybaby room. That's where it used to be. But I can still remember being in that office February of 81, probably, maybe March. The lady came to see me. Said, Jim, I have to talk to you. I am happier than I have ever been in my whole life with my new girlfriend. She actually changed her name in time. But she said, there's one thing that interferes with my happiness. I know what the Bible says. She said, I've attended churches that are led by homosexual pastors. I've attended churches that are led by lesbian pastors. And when I attend those churches, I see them twisting Scripture. And I know they're doing it. And I know what the Bible says. That's the only thing that interferes with my having total happiness. She didn't change. Can you imagine the grief I felt on that day? I had to honor this woman <laughs> in that she would not twist Scripture. But I could not honor the decision that she had made. And I'll tell you, today, in place after place after place, the thing to which that woman objected is being done. 
in order to excuse wicked lifestyle. Verses 5 to 15, which is actually 64% of the letter, talk about the certainty of God's judgment on those who do these things. We don't want to spend time on this. It's so obvious. But there's one thing that I want to point out in this list. In verses 8 and 10, your reverence, yet in the same manner these men also by dreaming defile the flesh, reject authority, revile angelic majesties. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him, that is Satan, a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these men revile things which they do not understand. And the things which they know by instinct like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. Last week in his sermon from Romans, Bill pointed out very strongly that passage describing those people who said they, they he, the Romans describes them, they knew God, yet they refused to honor Him as God. And then two chapters later in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 18, Paul describes the symptoms of the spiritual disease that had affected society. And then in verse 18, he diagnoses the disease. They have no fear of God before their eyes. From the time of John Locke onward, whose philosophy so influenced America that many think probably we would not have the United States of America had it not been for the philosophy of John Locke. But his influential writings spoke about the equality of man and that every man is, is an autonomous individual and responsible for himself and really should not be subject to any kind of... Uh, uh, autocratic dominance. And it is that philosophy, really, according with scriptural ideas as well, that produced modern democracy. Now those of us who have lived with that thinking, and all of us have, really, because how could you be an American today and not think that way? We all have a vote. But having always lived in that culture, it is very difficult for us to understand what it means to have a sovereign God. We have never lived under an absolute monarch who has the right to snuff out our life just because he wants to. And when we come into his presence in fear and trembling... We kneel and bow. Those of us who have been reared in our culture find it difficult to understand what true reverence and fear of God is. 
because of who we are and the culture in which we've been reared. Wasn't it wonderful this morning? The sense of reverence in our building during our time of singing songs and communion. You know, you could attend church after church after church in Tulsa today and there would be no reverence, no awe of God, no sense that we're in the presence of a divine being. Now he illustrates this by Michael. Now notice who Michael is. Michael is the only being in Scripture ever called an archangel. In the book of Revelation, he is the angelic general who leads the armies of God's angels to defeat the dragon. In the book of Daniel, when the angel had been sent with a message to Daniel and couldn't get through because the powerful satanic demonic force over Persia, he couldn't get through and Michael came and moved him away and the messenger could get to Daniel. Michael, the one who seems in Scripture to be just beneath Jesus Christ in that angelic heavenly hierarchy of the army of God. That's Michael. But Michael is not equal to Satan. Now, what Jude is describing here is an episode that is described in the apocryphal book called The Assumption of Moses. In this book, Jude cites two apocryphal books, The Assumption of Moses and the Book of Enoch. Book of Enoch written about 160 B.C. Uh, Assumption of Moses written around the time of Jesus' birth. This was literature generally known among the Jews. And so, in arguing his case, Jude cites something that people were familiar with. And he said, when Michael was arguing over the body of Moses with Satan, he did not dare issue a railing accusation against Satan because he wasn't his equal. And so he said, the Lord rebuke you. I saw a television special, I don't remember when, a couple years ago, maybe about the development of arms, rifles, carbines, and so on. And I wish I'd taken notes, but I remember about a particular British officer. He was not just a private, he was an officer. He had, he had made improvements upon the British weaponry, made about three of these things. Rifles, I suppose, because rifling had been invented earlier, although it wasn't common at that time. And in a battle, normally, you know, you have the two armies that stand facing each other and fire. And if you're just firing a musket because the ball rattles around in the barrel when it comes out, you're not sure where it's going to go. So if you're shot, it's the will of God, you know. But with a rifle, it's different. This man had an accurate weapon, and he was not in the line, but he was off at the side, and he said, I had George Washington in my sights, and I could have squeezed the trigger and killed him, but I didn't. 
because an officer of my rank has no right to kill a general. <laughs> Absurd to us, isn't it? And yet in that British sense of status, much what Michael showed with Satan, I'm not his equal, therefore God, the Lord, rebuked thee. Brother and sister, I don't know how we can ever do it. But some way we need to plead with God to give us a greater sense of what it means to encounter this sovereign divine being and that reverence might rule in our lives and in our churches. We live in a very irreverent, a very casual a very disrespectful world in which authority, even godly authority, is ignored. Now Jude closes his discussion with an exhortation concerning our responsibility for ourselves and for others. Verse 20 to 23, You beloved building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some, have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted with now, notice in the verse before, he describes those individuals who are twisting Scripture. Those individuals who are disrupting the church, he says, they are devoid of the Spirit. Which is obvious, because the Holy Spirit would never move anybody to do that sort of thing. And so he says we should build ourselves up through prayer in fellowship with the Holy Spirit. The preposition is important here. He says in the Holy Spirit, which is not tongues. Tongues is with the Spirit. In the Spirit means that we're praying in fellowship with, the empowerment of, the leading of, which can include tongues. But that's not defining tongues. It means that whatever kind of prayer we're praying, we should seek to be in fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Usually that requires getting still, <laughs> but not always, because the Holy Spirit is not limited. But then he talks about our responsibility. Wasn't that beautiful testimony this morning? Thank God. But he talks about sincere doubters. Those who are sincere doubters, be patient with them. Others you just need to grab and snatch. <laughs> Whatever, he says, be merciful. <laughs> be merciful. So, brother and sister, this morning as we conclude, we don't, I just pray we'll not forget this exhortation. We will not lose the courage to with a Christ-like spirit, and that's so important. I remember... Hearing the story about one man, Susie came out of the baptistry, said, Praise God, I'm ready to argue. 
Uh, there's something wrong with that spirit. <laughs> but with the spirit of Jesus Christ, let us always have the God-given courage to contend for the faith that was once, once for all delivered. We also need to be aware that all of us at times are prone to twist scripture. We won't tr treat it like a legal document look for a loophole, you know instead of the spirit of the word that guides us forth. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forever. Amen.